Hey there, I'm Zen Hess, and this is Currents and Religion, a podcast brought to you by the Department of Religion at Baylor University and by Baylor University Press. Thanks for listening today. Historians and archaeologists are like artists who help us imagine in more vivid color the worlds of the stories we read from the past. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, who has just come to Baylor University as Associate Professor of Hebrew Bible Old Testament. Her work as an archaeologist and historian has helped us better understand the daily life of people in the ancient Near East. Her scholarship explores homes and households, food and hospitality, and the importance of domestic ritual in ancient religious life. Keep listening to hear more about her work and why she thinks it matters for reading the Hebrew Bible. Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott, thanks for joining us on Currents in Religion. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So you have just joined Baylor's faculty um, this year. Could you start by telling us a little bit more about some of the things that you have worked on or that you're currently working on? Yes. Well, uh, what I'm currently working on, I'm working on a co-authored book with one of my colleagues, Dr. Libby Backfish from Jessup University. And uh, we are working on an Old Testament theology from the ground up. Okay. And basically what it was her brilliant idea. I have to give her credit for yeah. it. But uh, where we noticed, she noticed that there was all these theology books that pay very little attention to context, especially historical and cultural context. And um, they say it's important, but there's not much there. And then, of course, in the world of historical and cultural and social mm -hmm. co context, which is the areas I work in, there's been some work uh, on that, uh, but not nearly as many as theology books. Sure. And so we thought as far as in the classroom, it would be great to have a book that we address 12, you know, good biblical number um, issues or themes. And I first look at the historical and cultural and social context of it. And then she looks at... Israel's theology of that in light of the context that I've just provided. So we are about halfway through. I'm with so that. excited. Yeah. <laughs> We're a little behind. Oh, oh, well, that's okay. That's okay. Well, Who isn't behind? Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, COVID didn't help. And then, of sure. course, moving, um, you know, a great distance does, yeah. doesn't help either. But that's the big project I'm working on right now. And then. Can we just take a moment to appreciate the title? It is, it is a, a brilliant title. It is a good working uh, for title. For what you guys are doing let's yeah, see from it. the ground up. Yeah, yeah, let's see if they let us uh, keep, keep the it. title. Oh, sure, sure. <laughs> so one of the books um, that most entices me that you've written is the, the five-minute archaeologist, um, where you and a collection of authors try to explain questions that uh, 
either often or maybe should be asked of archaeologists in a way that people like me, who know nothing about archaeology, <laughs> can understand. Um, could you could you maybe tell us a little more about your particular work in archaeology and what you're discovering or learning now that excites you most? Yeah, well, the the five minute archaeologist is is really helpful, and I'm glad you said addresses questions that you should also ask because mm -hmm. there's a lot of questions that people don't know to ask. Right. And um, you know, as an archaeologist and an Old Testament scholar, people find out what I do and they automatically start asking, what's the most interesting thing you found? Uh -huh. How do you decide where to dig? And so um we thought this would be great to put it all in one place. Yeah. Um and archaeology you know, I'm a field archaeologist, so I'm not a specialist. I don't have sure. like a certain speciality, but I'm in the field uh, mm. excavating and I take in the past, I've taken students. Oh, so fun. Um, yeah. And it's really fun because they know nothing. They don't have to have any. Yeah. You know, it doesn't have to be their major. They don't have to have any experience. But field archaeology is not hard to pick up. Okay. Um, it's it's challenging. You know, it's mm -hmm. hard work, especially in the ancient Near East, of which Israel was a part of. Um, there's a lot of moving of dirt. Sure. Uh, so it's interesting that people pay to do meal field work. You know, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like manual labor in, yeah. in a sense, but. Um, so as far as what excites me, the thing about doing field archaeology is that this is history that you can see and touch. Okay. And it, it makes history more um, real, at least to me and to a lot of the students that I take with me, and that you are the first person to see or touch something that hasn't been seen or touched in thousands of years. Yeah. And one of the things that I, I bring to the classroom with me is I I have, you know, a variety of broken pottery mm. pieces, what we call pottery shards. Yeah. And one of them is a, a handle. And I take it with me to class when we talk about archaeology because you can feel where the potter's fingers impressed the oh. handle onto the body of the vessel. Interesting. It is. And sometimes you can even f see a fingerprint. Right. Such a such a significant kind of relational connection with these people yes. that, that came before us. Yeah, absolutely. It's very profound. Yeah, I think if you can kind of get past the physicality of the work and think I'm the first person to see or touch this mm -hmm. thing in thousands of years. And it and it makes it makes the history or it makes the biblical text, it makes it, I think it makes it in come alive. Yeah. You know, it's, it makes it seem like, oh, here's the real place. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess you could say it, it, it puts it in color yeah, as opposed to black and white. Interesting. You know? And one of the ways that, that the work that you're doing archeologically and, and in your, um, and in your re research of the, the old Testament specifically connect the daily lives with what we would typically, I think, think of as a more separate kind of ritual life. Um, so, so tell us more about that connection. How, how are you making the connections between uh, ancient Near Eastern people's ritual lives at home or at sacred places? Yeah, I think something that's been um, 
historically within biblical studies and within archaeology, people have been more interested in, in what we call, uh, you know, the places of prestige, you know, mm. the monumental, mm-hmm. the temples, the palaces, the battlefields, the people associated with those things, you know, the priests, yeah. the prophets, the kings, the gov- you know, the commanders of the military and all that's great and good. Mm-hmm. And, and the Hebrew Bible is concerned more with the monumental than the everyday, yeah. right? It's it's concerned with how did the kings do this? How did the prophets do this? It doesn't give us a day-by-day account of how people lived, right. your average ancient Israelite, your average man, woman, and child. So one of the things that I'm interested in is that daily life and how we can use both the biblical text and archaeology. So even though the biblical right. text, that's not its, for the most part, it's not its main point looking at the mundane part of life. Right. But there are windows into mm-hmm. it. And then, of course, the material culture through archaeology is the physicality of what's been left behind. Right. And so one of the areas I'm interested in it, uh, in daily life is households and how the house looked, mm-hmm. how the people or the members of the household, who were they? Um, and then what did they do? What kind of activities did they engage in? And so some of those activities would include food preparation, um, weaving, you know, just everyday mm-hmm living on the farm type of life, right? You know, but also religious ritual because in reality, um, I don't think your average Israelite would have gone to either a temple or a local shrine all that often. Okay. I think they, I mean, they would have gone probably on on special occasions, Mm -hmm. but your everyday religious ritual would have been conducted in the home. Oh, yeah. So we find in our excavations, especially when we're excavating houses, we find uh, these little clay statues mm-hmm. and we call them when we excavate them, we call them figurines. Okay. And so we have, we find them in both animal form. So zoomorphic figurines or human form. So anthropomorphic mm-hmm. figurines. Um, and we find them in houses and so this is what scholars think the Bible is referring to when it talks about the teraphim, the mm-hmm. idols, which is usually translated as idols. Sure. And, you know, any kind of children's Bible or discovery channel documentary sure. in air quotes, um, they when they talk about the idols, they're always these big statues and yeah. they're made of gold and they've got all this adornment. Mm-hmm. But in the daily life of your average person, theirs would have just been these simple clay figurines. Yeah. They might have been decorated or painted, but you know they're just a terracotta color. And we find a lot of female figurines okay. in particular. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion about these female figurines. What are they representing? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of scholars think that these female figurines are representing some form of a female deity like sure. Asherah, um, Astarte. Um, but then there's also been talk about how some of these figurines, how some of them, not all of them, but some of them seem to be um, 
you know, have a look like they're in some stage of a reproductive role. Um, And and those are not nearly as many as other types of of female figurines, but there's been discussion about that, about, Mm -hmm. okay, so what were these figurines used for? And so some of that discussion includes, okay, well, maybe these figurines um, are used by women Mm -hmm. uh, in the household because their own reproductive role was such a scary thing. Sure. Um, I don't know if they would use those words, but when I think about the reality mm-hmm. of a woman's daily life and how her her purpose, maybe not purpose, but her ability to reproduce was a, a big issue mm-hmm. for her. Which is one reason why I think when we see, especially in the books of Genesis, the whole barren wife motif, you know, this would have been um, a shameful thing for a woman back then if she was Mm -hmm. unable to have children. So God intervening in those passages is a very, you know, um, big deal. Yeah. So when we think about on the household level, on the material culture, archaeological side, we think about, okay, well, maybe women were using these female figurines Mm -hmm as part of their own religious rituals to be seeking um, from their household deities, particularly female deities mm-hmm. like Asherah, who is a fertility mother earth goddess um, that, you know, they are trying to, you know, use those figurines to seek out the God's blessings as, of, you know, of conceiving and then having a healthy and safe birth that right. both mother and child survive. Right. So the birth rate would is guessed to be um, very low. The survival of the birth rate would have been very low, and that women's survival would have also been very low. Um, what would be a, a conservative estimate, uh, percentage-wise, maybe? Well, percentage-wise, um, I'm trying to think. I've read... You know, I think it's Carol Myers that really has talked about this. But the one thing that pops into my mind that mm-hmm. might be a better way to envision sure. this for uh, your listeners is it's been estimated that if a woman lives to be 37 mm-hmm. years old, that she's considered a wise old woman. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that kind of puts it in perspective. And I think that comes from Jenny Ebling's book, um, The Lives of Biblical Women. Okay. Um, and so if you think about how much of a concern, Mm -hmm. um, that would have been for women, you could see why they would have said, I'm going to pray to whoever I need to pray to in order for this to Mm -hmm. happen, um, safely. Yeah. You are listening to Currents in Religion. And this is a conversation with Dr. Cynthia Schaefer Elliott, who teaches Hebrew Bible at Baylor University. So let's circle back to um, your your archaeological work on households. Mm-hmm. Um, could you help us understand, right, as we're imagining maybe a scene from scripture uh, where someone is maybe like Abraham showing hospitality or, or, or uh, another, any of the number of scenes where food is integral, what would, 
what would that preparation process have looked like in the home? Would, I mean, you know, I'm thinking in my own context, right? The kitchen is uh, in our open concept house. It's kind of integrated into <laughs> yeah. the living room. Uh-huh. Um, give us some idea of, of what it would have looked like to step into an ancient household. Right. So the time period I'm interested in is the Iron Age. Okay. So the Iron Age is roughly 1200 BCE to 586 okay. BCE. And that's the, those are the the parts in the former prophets in particular of uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings that are supposed to be set during that time period. Okay. So when we excavate houses that are Iron Age houses, they do have a typical uh, floor plan. Okay. And they're sometimes, they've been historically referred to as the four room house. Mm. But a lot of us disagree with that ah, title tell because us why. not all of them have four rooms. <laughs> oh, a, <laughs> so, pretty, a pretty simple a disagreement. A pretty yeah. simple disagreement. Sometimes they have three rooms. Okay. And it really depends, though, on the needs of the household. And the needs of a household are going to change over time. So you might put up a small wall um, because you need a separate space for mm-hmm. uh, another son and his family or whatever. Right. Um, so the bot, so when we excavate houses, we really only have the bottom level. Right. Of course. Right. So we don't get the, but we do think that they were two stories. Okay. That the bottom story of the house, the bottom floor would have been like the main um, working part of the house. Cause you have to think about, Israelites are farmers. They're mm-hmm. agro-pastoralists. They right. have fields and orchards and animals, and they don't go to work. Mm-hmm. They work at home. Right. Home is not just where you live. It's also where you work. So your bottom floor uh, would often have a courtyard in front of the house. Okay. Now, some scholars think that there's one in the middle of the house, but I would say it's more likely to be in front of the house. Okay. Um, and then you, when you enter the house, you have three long rooms. So let's just go with the four rooms. Mm -hmm. All right. Just for the sake of argument, you have three long rooms and those three long rooms are often divided by pillars. Okay. And those pillars are what supports the second floor, but also segregates space on the bottom floor. Sure. And then this, and then in the back of the house, there's a broad room, a room that runs perpendicular to those three long rooms. And that's usually at the very, it's at the back of the house. And, and then, then how they use that space is all those different rooms is a little bit different, but technically, usually the central long room is kind of the central living room type space. And there's one of uh, a study that I liked that looked at um, the placement of ovens mm. would say, so ethnographic research where they're and looking at present day traditional societies associated in with the Middle East, okay. that ovens are a marker of a central living room space where you can say, this is the hearth, the heart of yeah. the home, right? right. And so we also find on that bottom floor, we find lots of uh, features and artifacts that indicate what type of activities were going on there. Mm -hmm. They're usually things related to weaving, to food preparation, to cooking, um, to the storing of goods. Um, And then the thought is that the top floor would have been where the family would sleep 
Mm-hmm. And maybe there's some light household chores would have been conducted up there, okay. but nothing like you couldn't take anything heavy, you mm-hmm. know, really up, up there to like a big grinding yeah. <laughs> installation or something. But the bottom floor too is also thought to have one of the side rooms would have, if especially if it had a stone floor, mm-hmm. um, it's thought to be the stable. Oh, okay. Right. Cause if you got to think about most of these people, um, their herds wouldn't have been massive sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they might have, but and they might have had a different space for that. But if they had a small herd, then they would bring them inside right. into that small space, that long room. And in the wintertime, that would help generate heat. Sure. You know, um, it might be a little stinky. Yeah. <laughs> but um, and so that that forecourt, the courtyard mm-hmm. in front of the house would have been just as much of a working space in the house as the central room would have been inside. Because, I mean, think about it. You don't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. You've got little tiny windows. It's it's not going to be in the summertime. It's not going to be a great place to be. So a lot of your your working would have been outside as well, um, your household chores. So when we think about a house and what it looked like, that's kind of the general idea. Mm -hmm. And then you have to get into the question of the household, the members. Right. Right. So you, we typically think of just a family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a traditional uh, family of uh, father and mother and some kids. But it would have been different for them because they were multi-generational mm-hmm. families. Um, and you would have also had people who weren't related to you. You could have had people who living there who... Maybe were slaves. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were guests. Maybe they were um, seasonal workers, oh, right? Okay. And maybe a seasonal worker lived nearby and just came to work for you, but didn't live with you. So mm-hmm. those would all be members of the household, right? Right. So um, it's almost like if you have a tenant in your house, mm-hmm. you know, where they're not related to you, but they're part of your household. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of that same idea. So when um, we think about households in in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, you know, we get little snippets here, yeah. here and there. Um, but you get some, of course, related to the hospitality, mm-hmm. uh, like you were mentioning with with Abraham and, and the divine messengers in Genesis. Um, and you get other lots of stories of hospitality that, of course, all relate to food because food right. would have been a major component of the survival of your everyday life. Yeah. Really interesting. Um, thank you for all of that. I, I do want to now circle back to um, the fact that you've just gotten here to Baylor. And I'm curious to know how you hope being in this particular academic context might enable you to further your research uh, in new ways. What what are you what are you most excited for as you get started here? Well, I'm excited to be here in general, but I I mean to be able to Baylor is a very supportive environment. You know, they mm-hmm. they give you the the time and the resources to do the research that you're most passionate about. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in um pursuing my next um, book project, mm-hmm. which I'm hoping to incorporate my my love of continue my expertise in food studies. Great. Um, but also keep looking at issues of gender 
and how they are found within the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about next as far as a big project. Cool. And I'm really excited about it. That's great. Well, welcome to Baylor. We're glad that you're here. And thank you for making some time for us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you once again to Dr. Cynthia Schaefer-Elliott for making time to talk with us. And I should note that she is one of three Old Testament Hebrew Bible faculty that we hired last year. The other two, Erica Dunbar and Julian Chaik, are outstanding, and I'm looking forward to getting to know them too and hope to have them on in the future. So look out for their episodes sometime in the months to come. But for now, I'm going to kick things over to Dave Nelson, who is going to introduce you to an author from Baylor University Press and their new book. You're listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm your host, Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press. Today on The Elevator Speech, we're joined by Paul J. DeHart, professor of theology at Vanderbilt Divinity School and author of Unspeakable Cults, an essay in Christology, released last fall by Baylor University Press. Paul, thanks for being with us today. What's your elevator speech for Unspeakable Cults? What's the big idea? So the work springs from the conflict between the modern historical worldview with its relativistic assumptions and methods, and the classical Christian assertion of the absolute status of Jesus of Nazareth as God's saving incarnation in history. The conflict is thus between, on the one hand, faith's claim that one historical fact or cluster of facts has unlimited and decisive significance for all human beings, and on the other hand, the modern historical premise that reduces the significance of all facts to their locations and interrelations and generates a practice of historical judgment, which must assess all factual claims in terms of plausible local causal interactions. So the book is a kind of experimental resolution of this tension based on the surmise that a proper understanding of God's incarnation as an historical human being, which I believe is indispensable for Christian faith, can be made compatible with the modern discovery of history, which I believe is a precious legacy that must be preserved. So over the course of three parts, the book offers a complicated argument that an understanding of Jesus's factual history is possible and a model of the relation of divine causation to historical causation is feasible that could in combination allow the affirmation of Jesus's divinity without proposing a miraculous rupture of the world's imminent causal patterns. Now, in the first part, the book identifies classic articulations of the conflict between Christology and history in 19th century German thought, especially Ernst Trelch and David Friedrich Strauss, and then draws on the history of religions to briefly suggest possible relevant motifs in first century culture that mitigate the tension between Jesus's humanity and his deified status in early Christianity. This overcomes a preliminary stumbling block 
suggesting the tenability in purely historical terms of a scenario in which Jesus himself evinced a deifying self-understanding, whose cultural categories were similar in kind to those deployed by the communities that came to worship him. In the second part, the heart of the argument, the book appropriates ideas from Thomas Aquinas in order to construct a model for understanding the eternal word's presence in a human being as a thoroughly historical and cultural occurrence, but one dependent at every point on divine power. This power is conceived in terms of quasi-formal causality rather than in terms of supposedly intervening acts of efficient causality. The result might be called a pneumatology of incarnation as cultural event, again, seeking to undermine any strict opposition between Jesus's absolute status and the relativistic assumptions of historicism. The final part deals with the resulting challenges to traditional belief resulting from this proposed model, including the irremediable ambiguity of Jesus's performances of signs and wonders, namely that faith cannot demand that these be miracles in the strict sense, and the constitutively unfinished nature of his human identity, namely that because of his divinity, Jesus must be a blurred or unfinished human fact, continually rediscovered by the interpretive work of his ecclesial body in history. I argue, drawing on Kierkegaard and Bonhoeffer, that this ambiguity and this incompleteness of Jesus should be seen not as scandals of modern consciousness, but rather as necessary aspects of the offense that has always confronted faith in Jesus as God. The result of the book's experiment can be seen as an application of the spirit of Chalcedon to the historical imagination. The Christ event may be enchanted history, but it is not composed of enchanted facts. Mm. A fascinating argument and an outstanding Baylor University Press book. Thank you, Paul, for sharing your elevator speech with us. You're welcome. You've been listening to The Elevator Speech, an occasional feature of Currents in Religion, a Baylor Religion Department and Baylor University Press podcast. I'm Dave Nelson, director of Baylor University Press, and my guest today has been Paul J. DeHart, author of Unspeakable Cults, an essay in Christology, now available from Baylor University Press. Hey friends, Zen again, and I just wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of Currents in Religion. As always, it would be super helpful if you would share this episode, subscribe, leave a review, all of those things. But what I really want to say this time around is that I'm going to be at AARSBL, and I would love to meet some of you. So if you're going to be out in Denver, um, come by the Baylor University Press book booth and ask for Zen. I would love to meet you and chat with you a little bit. Uh, I'll be doing some interviews while I'm out there, which should be good fun. And also, um, I want to give you a little inside scoop here that Baylor University Press is going to do a pretty significant book giveaway. And so more details will come in next week's episode, uh, and you'll be able to find more details at AARSBL as well. Uh, but I wanted to give you a heads up about that. So listen to next week's episode for a bit more about a big Baylor University Press book giveaway. Thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, take care. Mm-hmm.